Welcome to Trending in Education. This is Mike Palmer. It's the summer of 2022. We're going to still keep this feed active with two episodes each week. The first of which is going to be spiffy and new. The second is going to be an amazing classic. One of my all-time favorites. This episode today is no exception. This is with Dr. Jacqueline Baba, a professor of human rights out of Harvard University. She wrote a really interesting book about the role of higher education for displaced and marginalized people. Many of the conversations I've had over the years resonate with me. This is one that certainly has been resonating more in light of the war in the Ukraine, the climate crisis that we're in the midst of. Folks are getting displaced more and more the role that education can play in extending human rights and appreciating individuals' humanity and ability to thrive and grow. It's a deep one. It's one I hope you enjoy. We'll pick up now with my conversation with Dr. Jacqueline Baba. Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited to be joined by Dr. Jacqueline Baba, who's a professor of health and human rights at Harvard University. She's written a really interesting book called A Better Future, The Role of Higher Education for Displaced and Marginalized People. It's a really interesting topic. We're going to spend a, a good amount of time talking about it. But before we get to any of that, I wanted to welcome Jacqueline to the show. So Jacqueline, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you very much, Michael. Pleasure to be on the show. We talk a lot about trends on this show, but I don't know if we've really delved into some of the trends that you've been focusing on. Perhaps we're a little more navel-gazing about the, the state of higher education or K-12 education in the U.S., but you've really adopted a much broader perspective and, and a really interesting global human rights perspective that we're going to dive into. We'll get at that in a bit. To begin the conversation, I always like to get our guest's origin story. What got you to this point in your professional life? The platform is yours. Take us uh, anywhere you'd like to go. Thank you. That's a nice invitation. I think that the starting point for everything I do is that I am committed to human rights change and to social justice. And so in my professional career, I've both been a practicing human rights lawyer in Europe, in, in, in England, and at the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg in France, and now more recently um, a teacher, writer, researcher, an academic sitting in a university. But in both those roles, I've really dedicated my efforts to thinking about how you can improve things. I'm not one of those people who just studies to understand. I study to understand and to change. Mm -hmm. So that's the most general level at which I would answer your, your question. But more specifically, why this book? I've written a lot during my years in the university on issues to do with migration and displacement, A, and B, quite a lot of my work is about children. And so in a way, this book is that intersection of the Venn diagram where I'm talking both about issues to do with displacement and other types of marginalization mm -hmm. on the one hand, and also on the other hand, I'm talking about young people. 
Mm -hmm. The reason behind this book, and I should say it's co-edited with two colleagues. One is, I'm a human rights lawyer, as I said, the other colleagues are A, an anthropologist who's a Canadian, and B, a social psychologist and public health, mental health expert. The three of us really came together from different perspectives with one key insight, which was that even as access to primary education and secondary education is increasing, not equally, not without problems, but nevertheless, access is increasing, take up is increasing, a higher percentage of the world's children are now enrolled in primary school than used to be the case. Even though that trend, that positive trend is a global trend, access to higher education, tertiary education, access to education beyond secondary school or beyond um, grade school, I guess you call it in America, that access is very uneven. And in some cases, it's not increasing at all. Mm -hmm. And that disparity is not accidental. So the disparity in access to higher education is very parallel to other disparities of exclusion, discrimination, social, economic inequality. Mm -hmm. So that's the first point, that this overall trend towards increasing educational insertion doesn't carry us right through from pre-K to postdoc. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. And the second important point is that this matters a lot because we live in a global, increasingly knowledge-based world in which primary and secondary education generally are not enough mm -hmm. to deliver a good future. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a question of equity. It's the question of what opportunities are you going to have in your life? And maybe 100 years ago, 200 years ago, doing five or six years of school would be great. It would really set you apart. That, of course, is no longer the case. And so these differences matter. And I guess that's the kernel of what brought me to this, to this project. Yeah, that makes, uh, makes a lot of sense. And, and a lot of the themes and topics we've discussed on this podcast around tertiary education, post-secondary education have been really begging the question a bit in the U.S. of the value of the traditional four-year degree, which is a theme that's very prevalent if you look at it on, from the lens of the U.S. When you look at that globally, it's a very different perspective. Can you give a little bit of context uh, around perceptions in the U.S. around higher education and uh, extent to which there is access to, to tertiary education, as you describe it, versus the broader uh, global perspective? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So we have an excellent chapter in our book, which is about the U.S., just one chapter, mm -hmm. which basically looks at minorities, racial minorities, typically. And it looks at the disparity in access, not so much to college, but good college mm. and college that delivers advantages, which is exactly going to your point mm -hmm. that not every college degree is the same, which is obvious, especially in this country where you have such, you don't have a public education system so much. You have these very big uh, differences between the best type of Ivy League school on the one hand and poorly funded community college on the other. So it's a whole world in between those two options. Mm -hmm. But um, in the U.S., 
many minorities, particularly racial minorities, but I think the same would be true of indigenous people, same as true of children with disabilities and so on. Many minority groups do have access to college, but the college they have access to doesn't yield the rewards it should. Mm -hmm. And so the chapter in our book um, is, I think, quite fascinating. It shows how often kids will end up with a lot of debt and that debt is not really easy to discharge through the sort of job market that they have access to. So in other words, it's not been a very good investment. Mm -hmm. Now that's just in a nutshell. And of course, there are many nuances and U.S. is an enormous country with enormous diversity. But that is um, a thumbnail sketch of one of the issues in this country. Mm -hmm. If you like social justice or social injustice issues in this country, which is getting a lot of rightly getting a lot of tension these days. Mm -hmm. If we look at the global picture, we see other trends as well. So, of course, there are distinctions based on gender, which is an old story in some parts of the world. Gender really, more than anything else, determines when you stop school. So we have a chapter on India. We talk about the challenges that girls face staying in school and going on to college, particularly when they come from families where there hasn't been this pattern. So that is certainly not a question of race simply put. There are caste distinctions, but that is very much determined by expectations about gender roles in different communities. So that's one difference. And then another problem that we look at, which arises in many different uh, contexts in Latin America, in, in Asia and in Africa, is the exclusion of non-citizens. Non-citizens can both be immigrants, mm -hmm documented or undocumented, and we actually have a chapter on that, but they can also be refugees. And one of the topics we're particularly interested in, and one of the topics where there's been a lot of really innovative work is on refugee access to education. At the moment, a very small proportion of refugees get access to college. So they really are discriminated against, you could say, maybe not consciously or intentionally, but yeah. the result is that a much smaller proportion of refugees are enrolled in and regularly attend college than non-refugees, which is a huge issue if you're thinking about somebody who's been forced to leave home, who's anyway having to prove their credentials and try and get integrated. And then on top of that, not to have a good education just adds to the disadvantages you already experience. So that's a topic that we analyze in different contexts. There are also some very exciting innovations there. So good practices, which we highlight. We try not just to only talk about problems, but also to talk about some of the solutions or some of the, you know, ways forward that are encouraging. And in the refugee education context, there really are some exciting developments, which give us some hope for a better future. Yeah. We'd love to, to get into that next, perhaps, as you mentioned in your introduction, that this is not a purely academic problem for you and hopefully for all of us, and that there are opportunities to affect change. In many ways, the pandemic has changed our global consciousness in some pretty profound ways that may open up a little bit of readiness to adopt some of the best practices and to change some of the ways in which we have historically operated. I would love to hear a little bit more from you on perhaps some of the the more hopeful notes, although I know overall this is very difficult domain to really dedicate your career to. So thank you again for your service. Can you share with us where you're seeing some of the innovation and some of the, the, the positive developments in this space? 
Uh, sure. So I think there's several different points here that I might mention. One is unrelated to the COVID-19 pandemic. It really predates it. But it is very much related to the expansion of educational technology that you, not me, are an expert on. This is talking about refugee education, which is something particularly uh, close to my heart. There has been a growing acknowledgement that our previous way of dealing with this, which was to have special education for refugees in camps or in mm -hmm. special refugee centers, that is really not a constructive way. It won't surprise you to hear this. And that it's much better to think about including refugee children in mainstream education. And of course, you might need to have transitional language and other types of accommodation, but that the general model should be not to hive off refugee kids into kind of refugee ghetto schools, but to include them in the mainstream. So that's the kind of general backdrop. And within that context, then there's also a sense that refugee university education should also be part of a general provision of higher education to young people. Now, that's been extremely difficult for refugees to access for a range of reasons, partly just simply being able to meet the requirements, proving that they've done the exams, in some cases proving they have the legal status, the immigration status to get into a university, which they might not be eligible to, in some cases proving that they have the funds or whatever. So there are many obstacles. But one of the really exciting things that has happened and that in a way technology has enabled is making education that is taking place elsewhere accessible to you in the refugee camp. So even though you are stuck in, say, the Dadaab refugee camp, which is the largest refugee camp in the world, which is um, largely Somali and some Sudanese in Kenya. And some people have been there for many years. Some of those young people now have access to a degree that is blended between the University of Nairobi in Kenya and a university in Canada. Mm -hmm. And they get that qualification if they meet the requirements. Mm -hmm. And they do this through the internet. So they are sitting in Dadaab, but they are getting the materials, they're getting the teaching, they're getting the classroom discussions, and eventually they're getting the qualifications. So that's one, I think, tremendously exciting and original way of redistributing access to higher education and quality higher education, mm -hmm. not of course, without its difficulties. I was talking to one of my co-editors who has been instrumental in this program. And of course, you can imagine we have problems of connectivity and internet load. You can imagine sitting in a refugee camp in, in, in Northern Kenya. One yeah, of right. course, there are all those, those contingent technical hitches. But the bottom line is that kids are learning and kids are participating in an international classroom, blended classroom, if you like, with professors who come from all over and who are very highly trained. And that is just incredibly empowering. So that's mm -hmm. one really, I think, wonderful innovation that's happening now in other universities and there are other partnerships between other countries. But that model, so technology-mediated, inclusive higher education, if you like, which mm -hmm. doesn't take as given that refugees are separate, right? that they have less need or less eligibility or less entitlement to this mm -hmm. qualification. Another model, which is also great, is where teachers, higher education teachers, professors, 
actually go to refugee camps for a certain amount of time and set up courses or set up training opportunities. And we have a chapter describing that. Some of your listeners may be familiar with something that was called the jungle in Calais. Calais is this northern coast of France, just next to the British Channel. And for years, there was a large informal settlement of thousands of refugees from Syria, from Afghanistan, from Sub-Saharan Africa, from Middle East, kind of stuck there in northern France trying to get to the UK. And amongst them, of course, were many young people. And so some colleagues, wonderful colleagues from a university in London decided to take advantage of this kind of like dead time of these young people and actually do a course. Mm. And they describe it in a, one of the, I think, really exciting chapters in our book, how this worked and how, of course, incredibly appreciative and dedicated the students were. Mm-hmm. So that's another example. And of course, you then create relationships between peers. So these kids then become friends with British kids. And it's a virtuous cycle. So I find those examples very exciting. And then I'll just mention the last one, which is, I mentioned earlier that one of the obstacles that a lot of people have, but particularly refugees who've been forced to move from place to place and may have lost their language of you know origin, which they're most comfortable in. One of the things you need, of course, is certificates. You need some proof of your prior education experience. It's not like getting into first grade. You have to show that you passed some exams. And that's often a huge barrier, as you can imagine, because people don't have those qualifications. Mm-hmm. And so, again, another chapter in our book describes a very innovative and and creative, imaginative initiative started by the Central European University, which used to be based in Budapest and is now being forced to move to Vienna. But they have a program called the OLIVE program. And the idea here is that you credential refugees and you create equivalences Mm. for the skills they have, even if they haven't got the kind of school leaving certificate or the SATs or whatever it is that is your ticket to entry. Mm-hmm. And that's again, hugely enabling because it means that people who might not otherwise get access can get access to an education. So those are some examples, Michael, of, yeah. uh, I think really great ideas that have the potential to change the playing field. Yeah. Have you seen any activity from, uh, non-traditional higher education or the private sector. It's another trend that we talk about a decent amount uh, on this show as well, whether it's Google or Amazon or Facebook trying to educate engineers globally, some alternatives to maybe a more traditional tertiary educational pathway. Certainly, I know this is not something I've studied, but I certainly know that certainly amongst the immigrant and refugee community, there's a lot of reliance on these platforms for all sorts of information and for all sorts of skill sets. And people are, I'm always impressed by how creative and and the wrong generation for this kind of creativity myself. So I'm incredibly impressed by how much people do manage to use these platforms. Mm -hmm. So at, at one level, just very Simply people use it to navigate routes and find out about legal requirements, but other, but sometimes people do it to really do proper courses and mm-hmm. really acquire skills and mechanical skills or whatever skills. So I think that's absolutely right. And it's often a huge lifeline. Yeah. Such a makes, makes your day worthwhile or your, yeah. Yeah. So absolutely you do that. Of course, as with all these things. There's the upside and the downside. So we all know that, especially for young people and younger young people 
these tools can also be treacherous and they can also be dangerous. And unfortunately, that's the other side of it where people are also exploitable and can be tricked. And we see a fair share of that as well, where people are taken advantage of. But I think, yeah, there's a very strong, hugely strong potential for, for actually imparting an education information. Yeah. Yeah. And then more broadly, the trends around displacement and refugee movement are accelerating, I believe, but I'd love to get some deeper context from you so that folks understand the extent of the problem and the extent to which it's growing and it's growing just about everywhere. Yeah, I would say we shouldn't think about this as a crisis. This is mm -hmm. a steady state mm -hmm. for a range of reasons. Large scale migration has actually always been with us, but it's going to continue. It's not going to go away. And now with both the extent to which we have conflict, unfortunately, in our world and climate change, which is making some places uninhabitable, there's going to be a constant movement of people who have to change where they live uh, through, maybe not through choice, but through necessity. But I think we can see this, it certainly can create challenges, but it also creates enormous opportunities. And I think one of the interesting things that's been happening in the last few years is a movement spearheaded in the United Nations to try to improve the way in which we deal with migration so that we preempt disastrous bottlenecks, so that we preempt catastrophic accidents and that we try to create, and the words that they use are safe, legal, and regular, those three adjectives, safe, mm. legal, and regular migration for all who need it or who want it. And what that means is, of course, that you have to plan. But it also means that you have to accept that, look realistically at the needs you have, say, as a, a particular destination area and create legal access. So, for example, we have in this country, many wealthy countries, very substantial needs for technically skilled people, but also for unskilled labor. And whereas we grant legal visas to people with the right training and so on, who have higher level technical skills, whether they're medical skills or computer skills, we typically don't grant legal and regular visas to people who are unskilled, even though we need their labor mm -hmm. to look after our elderly people, to look after our children, to, you know, mow our lawn, whatever yeah. it is. And those should also be legal visas. Those people shouldn't have to come in an irregular way, which mm -hmm. then of course makes them more vulnerable. And they should also have opportunities then to get skills and credentials. I think the very important point that you make about how this is not a problem that's going away anytime soon, the correlate to that is that we need to more realistically assess mutual needs and address them in a more purposeful way than we've done so far. We can't just sit back and say, oh my God, we didn't realize that with terrible hurricane, hundreds of people have left Haiti or with a terrible earthquake, thousands of people are fleeing from Honduras. Well, we could have, we knew that was going to happen. So why don't we do something more planned? Yeah. Discussions of refugees or, or immigration is frequently couched in a context of scarcity and zero sum, where if these folks come in, they're going to take away something that a natural born citizen should have when in reality it's it's not a zero-sum game and in fact it's net beneficial to the society that these refugees come to that they do have access to the tertiary education and the 
the pathways to a successful life. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And it's particularly the case if we don't let everybody accumulate in one area. Mm-hmm. Example, so that becomes overcrowded, that becomes unsustainable, and that local people feel they can't continue with the generosity that they might have experienced at first. What mm-hmm. we need to do is have some sort of proper effective scheme of responsibility sharing, have a system of planning where we see, yeah, this is the needs we have. This is the areas where people can move to comfortably. This is the kind of training we need to offer and do it in a phased way over time with proper resources. I think what so often happens is that we don't plan and a lot of people arrive in one particular area and they initially get a warm welcome and then people get exhausted, not surprisingly. So I think that's exactly what's needed. And then ultimately, yes, it can be advantageous all round. You have trained people who want to work or young, who are healthy, who many cases have already been given their primary education elsewhere. So you're getting a freebie and you're creating a diverse and a more cosmopolitan society, which is probably good for everybody. Mm -hmm. Why did you don't dissipate that sense of generosity and inclusion that people start with? That makes sense. We haven't gone deeply into the conversation around the pandemic. So I I would be curious how that's impacted what you're researching and then maybe begin to get a window into what you see on the horizon. Because fortunately, many of us are starting to see a world on the other side of the pandemic and social isolation, social distancing. Can you talk about the impact that you've seen thus far and then maybe a window into where we may be heading next? Sure. So I think The impact thus far has been bifurcated in my field. I think in many contexts, it's just a downer for many people. There's social isolation, there's unemployment, there's increases in domestic violence, there's lots of different types of hardship. And that certainly applies to many people who are in the migration context. But in that context, there's been something even worse, which has been a radical closing of borders. Just about every single country has closed its borders, even to people who are fleeing for their life, mm-hmm. which some of us criticize, but nevertheless, that's been the way. So people have used public health arguments to really prevent people from, from entering. And that's really been very negative. The upside, though, is that this increased reliance and increased familiarity with online mechanisms for communicating, for convening, for teaching, for discussing has, I think, opened up our frame of reference enormously. I say this as a teacher, so I have been able to bring into my classroom people from all over the world, both colleagues, professors, experts, and also students who weren't allowed to come into the earth for whatever reasons or didn't feel safe. But you have a completely international space that you create quite seamlessly and actually in quite an egalitarian way. There are some discrepancies about time, so not really fair if I'm... For me, it's 10 in the morning and somebody else it's two at night. That's not exactly fair. There's a, so you could also do it asynchronously so they can listen to the recording. But the point is that you do have not only the possibility, you have the actuality of a much broader and more inclusive and diverse set of participants, which mm-hmm. means you have more diverse references. You have a broader canvas of ideas, of problems. And that cannot but be positive. I'm not yeah. really positive. And I... In terms of your question about what lies ahead, I do hope that 
some of that stays. I do hope that some of this sense, A, that we don't need to be getting on a plane every other day to go somewhere, but that we can do our meeting virtually and that we can bring people in without having a huge travel budget or a hotel budget. You can just out of collegial spirit, join somebody's class. It's a total win-win because we all benefit from these rich conversations. We all are stimulated. Students benefit enormously. And so I think that's a real positive, which I hope we retain even as we have the opportunity to leave our homes and, and socialize and have in-person meetings, which I welcome. <laughs> so I think there has been and I say this particularly for people like myself who are not very technologically confident or savvy and would much rather in the normal course of events have a face-to-face -face meeting or pick up the phone rather than do a Zoom call with split screens and different discussion groups and a chat box and all that. But once you master that, and it's not exactly rocket science, I don't need to tell you, it's amazing how you can enrich your perspective and how much you can bring to people and at, at low cost mm -hmm. is also the great point. So I think going back to the points we were making earlier about people who are refugees or people who are undocumented or people who have problems of access for other reasons to do with their identity, their gender or their caste or because they have a disability. This is tremendously empowering, and I do hope, and I don't know if you agree, Michael, you maybe know more of us, but I do expect that some of this will stay with us. It's just too powerful a set of tools to let go. Absolutely. That's my belief and, and also my hope, especially if it can be blended with the genuine value of being in the same place. We all will rejoice with, with glee when we're able to finally be back in the same physical space with others. But I don't think we go back to the way we were before. I think we'll hopefully build towards something better in the future. And as we're driving towards conclusion here, Jacqueline, are there any other uh, trends or any other ideas that you think are worth getting out to this audience as we're beginning to, uh, to wrap up? Are there ways in which folks can be activated against uh, some of the, the topics that you've been describing? Thank you, Michael. I think... I would like to leave with this notion of the importance of empathy. Empathy is a kind of woolly word, which you could say means lots of different things to different people. But the way I see it is really a sense of solidarity with others who might be in a different space, but who might enter your space in whatever way, virtual or actual. Mm -hmm. And I think that many of us, I don't think empathy is inevitable. But I don't think it's also completely foreign. I think it needs to be cultivated. It needs to be sustained. Just like xenophobia is not inevitable, but it can be generated. And so I think that going forward, the real challenge that we have both as individual members of communities, but also as voters and as people who are part of a polity is to think of ways that you sustain rather than dissipate empathy, because I think empathy is an incredibly important resource. Of course, personally, I want to see government providing services. I want to see local authorities, municipalities, towns, cities, making provision for all sorts of communities that need it. But I also want to see people doing that. And there's something about a person-to-person -person interaction which feels very different from a kind of bureaucratic interaction. And I think that you, lots of people display the proclivity, the inclination to show empathy 
at first or even for some period of time. But we don't, with our public policies, do enough to sustain that empathy. And so it gets dissipated. And then we see communities that were generous and hospitable and open turning. Mm. And that's what I think is very dangerous and not at all inevitable, but happens all too often. So that's the kind of thought I guess I would like to leave your um, listeners with, that if we can think of ways personally to engage, but also to get our elected representatives and so on to preempt problems so that some communities aren't disproportionately affected, don't feel abandoned, but actually feel sustained and supported and rewarded. I think that's that would be a virtuous cycle. Awesome. Uh, wonderful way to conclude. A really fascinating conversation. Thank you uh, very much for joining. Dr. Jacqueline Baba, a professor of health and human rights at Harvard University. The book is called A Better Future, The Role of Higher Education for Displaced and Marginalized People. Jacqueline, thanks again uh, for joining us. Thank you for having me, Michael. It was a pleasure. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you're hearing. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe, share the good word, tell a friend. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.